At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign overall. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. This morning, as we prayed, as we do every Sunday morning for all of our gatherings, we prayed that worship would not be passive, but that it would be passionate. That worship would not be just something we spectate, but something we participate in. So how many know that it's not just the choir's job to cry holy, 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 but each one of us has a responsibility of declaring to the Lord that you are holy, holy, holy. And how many do that joyfully this morning, declaring that God is good? Amen? And when we declare holy, what we're saying is that he is great. To be holy means to be set apart. There's nobody like him. He's in the class all by himself. That he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And I hope and pray that it, that is your life's blood. That that is the passion that drives your heart. That you have gotten such a glimpse of the greatness and the holiness of God that it has reoriented your life. That he is no longer just Lord of the fringes of your life, but that he is the centerpiece of your life. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I want to invite you, lift your hands with me as we pray. Father, I pray that you would just hear our voices today as we cry out, holy, holy, holy. Lord, we know there's two ways we can live our lives. We can live our lives for ourselves and our own glory, or we can live our lives for you and your glory. We choose the latter. We want to live for you and you alone. And so, Lord, we yield ourselves to you. We say, have your way. And we worship you today because you have been so good to us. And we know this, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. So thank you for the many blessings of our lives. We praise you today. And again, we cry, holy, holy, holy. And all of God's people with a loud voice said, amen and amen. Can you give God praise in this place? You can be seated. You can be seated. Later on today, fans all across this country are going to be cheering for one team or another. But this morning, how many can unify around this, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all? How many can give praise to Jesus who is worthy? You know, one of the things that Hollywood uh, writers and producers do really well when they roll out a new series is they build the anticipation from one week to the next. Anybody ever follow your favorite show and think to yourselves, I can't wait seven days to the next episode to come out. I need to know what's going to happen now. Well, I kind of pray that that same eagerness and anticipation is building over the book of Daniel, that each chapter 
chapter, like an unfolding saga, is so arousing your passion to see what God has done as a testimony of what he will and can do in our day and age, that you get excited between the weeks. That as Pastor Steve so powerfully did in preaching Daniel chapter 3, that as you left Daniel chapter 3, you said, I can't wait till Daniel chapter 4. Well, today is the day. So I invite you to join me in Daniel chapter 4 as we revisit this ancient story that has so much relevance for our day and age. Daniel is a book that at its core is about the clash of two kingdoms. I'm going to say it this way. It's about the clash of two worldviews. Two worldviews that may seem ancient but are very prevalent and relevant today. On the one hand is a worldview that I will summarize in one word and that one word is is humanism. Humanism professes that man is a god unto himself. That's what one uh, Marxist German philosopher said, Ludwig Feuermeyer, Feuerbacher, uh, once said, say that three times fast, once said that man is man's own god. And that's what humanism teaches, that man is man's own God, that at the end of our own innovation, our own creativity, our own ability, that we'll be able to solve all of life's problems. And so the one that is to be worshiped is us. But the Bible says there is a way that seems right into man, but the end of those ways end in death. Or destruction. And yet again and again, what we see in Babylon in the power of King Nebuchadnezzar is a man who thinks that he is the ultimate of what is to be worshiped, the ultimate and the apex of all of creation. But yet on the other hand, there is a different worldview that comes up again and again in the life of Daniel and uh, history friends. And that is what I would call theism, in particular Christian theism, to believe that there is one great God who created all things for his purposes and for his glory. And that we have been wired to praise him and him alone. That at the end of ourselves, when we get to the end of ourselves, what we find is a holy and righteous God who alone is able to save, who alone is the author of creation, who alone is the giver and the perfecter of our faith. How many believe that to be true? Amen? So here's the question in Daniel and the question for your life, which worldview are you living for? Humanism tells you to live for your own pleasure, for your own glory, for your own success, to do what makes you feel happy. Maybe you've bought into that theology and that worldview. Christian theism tells you to live for the glory of God, to get such a a glimpse of God that it captures your whole life and your whole heart. That's what I pray for us today. I think about Abraham when, when he got a glimpse of the greatness of God He gripped him for the rest of his life, and he served the Lord for the rest of his life. I think about Moses when he saw that burning bush, and he got a glimpse of the greatness of God. It changed him forever. I think about the disciples when they saw Jesus, the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. They were willing to die for him. 
let alone live for him. I pray that we, as we gaze upon the beauty of his word, will get such a vision of God that even young people would say, I want to serve him. Even if my peers aren't happy, even if it's not popular, I'm going to serve the Lord. I pray that those who are mature in age would say that as long as God gives me life, health, and breath, I want to serve him and bring him glory. That is what the book of Daniel is all about. Chapter 4 opens up with a very interesting letter. It is um, unlike any of the other chapters in this book in that this is written in the first person from Nebuchadnezzar himself and it is his personal testimony about coming to the realization that he is not Lord but that God is Lord of all. It really is a testimony of his humility. But here's the question of chapter four and the question we have to ask ourselves. How do we become humble? Because if we're not humble, we'll never submit and yield our lives to the Lord. But let's be honest, humility is elusive. We all struggle with pride. 100% of us struggle with our own brand of pride and so did Nebuchadnezzar. And so that's why this chapter is so powerful because he lays out for us how God makes a man or a woman humble. Look at the first three verses with me, if you will. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell, <clears throat> excuse me, in all the earth, uh, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. What a powerful way to open a chapter. I hope you didn't miss and notice a few things about this. First, that it's written in the first person. This isn't a story about Nebuchadnezzar as it opens. This is Nebuchadnezzar telling his own story. And it's a story that he wants the whole world to hear. Notice that this is an open global letter. It is to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. What would move a man to say that I want the whole world to know my testimony? It was because he had a life-changing encounter with God that not only humbled him, but it proved to him that God was the only one who could save, and he wanted the world to know about it. One of the evidences that you have come to a right understanding of God, one of the ways that you show that it is evidenced in your life that God has really transformed your heart and saved you is you want others to know. Let me put it in another way, that if we are Christ followers, if we profess that Jesus is Lord, we should not keep that silent. We should want our kids to know, our grandchildren to know. We should want our neighbors to know. We should want our city, our nation, and the world to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. How many have that desire in your heart? for the world to know that Jesus is Lord. What's interesting is who's writing this. It's Nebuchadnezzar, who is a powerful man, and this letter represents a total shift in his worldview. If we were to go back just one chapter, and Pastor Steve already preached about it last week, chapter three, he is building a great statue as an idol unto himself, telling everyone to bow down and to worship it. 
In verse 22, something powerful happens in chapter 3. We can't revisit the whole chapter, but if you remember, the three Hebrew boys decided not to bow their knee, and so he gives an edict to throw them in the furnace. He's so infuriated that he says, turn the furnace up seven times hotter than normal. And then he turns to these mighty soldiers and he says, throw them in. And as they're going to obey the king, they get lapped up in the fire and these soldiers die as well. Now, we know the end of the story. God preserves the lives of those who were obedient to him. But I want you to understand something about humanism that's very interesting. Humanism that is often taught in our universities, that is imposed upon our young people. This thought that man is his own God, that you should do what feels right to you. That humanism ultimately devalues individual human lives. That humanism isn't, isn't about the intrinsic value of each individual life. No, that's something we get from God because Genesis 1 tells us we've been made in his image. In the Latin, imago Dei, the image of God. But humanism throughout history has ultimately boiled down to men who will use other people to preserve their own power and pleasure. That's the end of a humanistic worldview. And that's the trajectory that Nebuchadnezzar is on. Now he wants the world to know I'm on a different track. I'm on a different trajectory. I've come to realize that the way I used to think was foolishness, that it's not about self-gratification. It's not about the exaltation of men. That the best men at the end are men at best. That at the end of ourselves, we find that we need salvation. I've come to a place of humility is what Nebuchadnezzar wants the world to know. And now I don't want to testify about me, but notice what he wants to testify about, about how great his signs are, God's signs, his might, his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. When you've been transformed, the only thing you want to do is testify to the world about the greatness of God. That's what's going on here with Nebuchadnezzar. But now he goes into the backstory. How did I go from chapter 3 to chapter 4? I'm glad you asked. And he gives us three things that God did to bring him to humility. The first thing that God did for him, and he will do it for you and me as well, is he warns us. He warns us about our sin. He warns us about our pride. Look at verses 1 through 18 with me. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. So notice that he was living the good life. And maybe that describes you. Maybe that describes the season of life you find yourself in, that things are going well. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in my bed, uh, the fancies, which means images, and the visions of my head alarmed me. He had not only a bad dream that you could call a nightmare, but it was a reoccurring bad dream. It kept coming back and back again. Anybody ever experienced that? Anybody ever been troubled by a dream you've had? Or some sense that you've had that something's not right? Well, this is what this man is going through. Again and again. So troubled he was. In verse number six, it says, So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. He wanted to know what was going on in this dream. Why would it keep coming back again and again? 
Verse 7, then the magicians and the enchanters, uh, the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and I told uh, them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Let's just pause there for just a moment. Because again, what Daniel is doing for us is a reoccurring theme. And here's the reoccurring theme that keeps coming up again and again and again. And that is this, that alternative spiritualities are deficient. That we live in a world where there's a marketplace of religious pathways. That you are told, just pick any type of spirituality. Just believe in any type of force or any type of path. And they all will connect you to God and all get you to heaven. But Daniel wants you to know that all those spiritualities offer is fool's gold. They promise you a connection to God. They promise to give you wisdom or peace or salvation. But when truly tested, they come up empty. And I pray that we will hear the wisdom of Daniel in our age, that God never called us to put together our own hodgepodge of creative spirituality, that this isn't some type of buffet where we get to pick and choose what we want to pick or put together, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Islam, a little bit of atheism, all of it wrapped in a veneer of Christianity. No, here's the real litmus test. You know that at the end, you have a deficient spirituality when instead of calling you to true obedience and submission to God, it ultimately empowers you to do what you want to do. And it's rude. It's really humanism. And this is the reason why most people leave Christianity or pursue alternative Christian, uh, uh, spiritualities. It's because at the core, we want to do what we want to do. But to find or to follow Jesus means that we submit our lives to him and we say, not I am Lord, but Jesus is Lord. Now, you can pursue those other paths, but Daniel's warning to you is at the end, there won't be the answers you're looking for. That's Nebuchadnezzar's warning as well. Verse number nine, it goes on to say, at last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar, you remember he was given that name when they were taken captives in Babylon. After the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? And I told uh, him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream uh, that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it uh, was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven of, he of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh were fed from it. This is a powerful vision. It's a vision of both strength and beauty, of both power and aesthetics. And what does he see? He sees the earth, and out of the earth grows this huge tree. And this tree is visible to the ends of the earth. In other words, all the nations look at it, at this tree. And they say, man, what an impressive tree. Its fruit is for, is enough to feed all of the nations. 
This nation, or this tree rather, was so beautiful that all of the birds found their dwelling place in its branches. This is how great this tree was. But the dream takes a turn. This beautiful image takes a turn. Verse number 13, I saw in the vision uh, my head as I lay in, in bed and behold a watcher, a holy one, this probably would have been an angel, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a uh, band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. And uh, it goes on to say the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules uh, the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. This dream took a turn. Uh, for the unexpected, this beautiful, powerful tree. Can you imagine how big that the whole earth sees it? It's lopped down. And it wasn't lopped down because there was any earthly uh, person that could do it. It was lopped down because of a decree from God. God had ordered that the tree be cut down. Cut down to a stump. Cut down to a low point. And it was a troubling dream. And in addition to that, I I hope you notice that in verse number 15, that the language changed from describing a tree to describing a man. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Verse 16, let his mind be changed. This was a dream, not just about an image or a tree, but it was a dream about a person. And who was the person in his dream? Well, Daniel goes on to interpret it, and he was afraid to do so. And the rest of the verses that follow up until verse, uh, up, up through verse 27, he tells him the interpretation of the dream, and he was afraid because he knew it was a dream of judgment. He knew that what he had to deliver to the king was an unpopular message that if you don't repent, O king, God is going to send judgment on you. Look at verse 24. It says, this is the interpretation, O king. It is the decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. You see the point of it all? The point of it all is God saying, King, there's things that you are doing that if you continue down this path, 
It's gonna drive you out of your mind. It's gonna drive you insane. And that's gonna be your judgment. I'm gonna let you experience the fruit of your own choices. You know what mercy is? Mercy is when God doesn't allow us to experience the fruit of our own choices. Be careful anytime you say, God, I'm not getting what I deserve. Because if we got what we deserved, how many know it's death, hell, and the grave? How many thank God he doesn't give us what we deserve, but he gives us mercy and he gives us grace? Look at verse 27. Daniel pleads with the king. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. In other words, this does not have to happen to you. God's mercy is that he gives us warning. And you know, I've read this chapter again and again and again in preparation of our time together. And my heart started out where maybe most of yours might be at right now, and it's uh, really critical of Nebuchadnezzar. It's real easy to read this chapter and to look at Nebuchadnezzar and say, you fool, how in the world could you get warned in such a clear way and continue down your path unrepentant? He gives you advance notice. But the more I read it, the more I realized that Chris Brooks, you're a lot like Nebuchadnezzar. And that's one of the ways that you know you are faithfully interpreting Scripture is when you need read a narrative like this and you put yourself either in God's shoes or the good person's shoes, you probably are reading it wrong. Because the truth of the matter is, it's not them that's in the need of prayer only. It's me in the need of prayer. The Spirit of God preserved the story for our generation so that we can look at it and say, Lord, what are you warning me about? Every one of us need to confront that question. What sins in my life are you warning me about that if I don't repent will ultimately bring about judgment? You know, it's interesting. You think about this. How many times has God given not only you and I individual advance warnings that if we keep doing something that's going to bring judgment or drive us out of our minds, but he's done it as a society and a culture as well. Some of you may remember the lawsuits in the 90s against the tobacco companies about cigarettes, and uh, they lost billions over it in revenue. Uh, But all of this had this uh, led to them having to publish the warning on the side of those uh, cigarettes uh, that uh, this will lead to cancer if you keep doing it. And yet those warnings are there, and yet so often, again and again and again, Uh, People will buy knowing that this might happen, it just won't happen to me today. That I might get in trouble for this sin eventually, it just won't happen to me today. You see, that's the trick of the enemy. Whether you're in an affair or you're cheating on your taxes or you're caught up in a web of lies, what the enemy will tell you is that, yeah, God will judge, but just not today until today becomes that day. I think about a modern equivalent maybe of something like this in our day and age, and uh, I think about social media. Uh, 
Social media has uh, taken such a dominant place in our lives. I was with college students about two weeks ago for, for a week and heard college student after college student talk about the anxiety that's in their life and how much of a distraction social media has become. And the interesting thing is that now we have research, we have congressional hearings, we have sociologists who tell us that social media, when consumed too much, produces an increase of depression and anxiety and suicide among girls, in particular teenage girls. It's no longer debatable. All of the information is there. It's as if God is saying, if you keep doing this, you're going to ultimately lose your minds. But yet we continue to consume unfettered, unhindered, without any type of boundaries. You know, it's easy to judge Nebuchadnezzar. It's easy for us to look at somebody else's sin and say, how foolish are they? But yet, I believe that the right way to read scripture is to put ourselves under it and to say, Lord, what are you saying to me about this? Where is God in his mercy and his grace warning Chris Brooks? And where is God in his mercy and grace warning us? Now, I want you to notice one more thing, and then we're going to go to the next point, and that is this, that the judgment or one of the ways that we know that we're out of our minds is when we begin to behave like animals. We begin to behave like the beast. Did you notice that? That that was the verdict, that you will not have a man's mind, you will have a beast's mind. Daniel is establishing something that we need to reestablish in our generation, and that is there's a difference between humanity and animals. Animals are not discerning. They do not process through the outcomes of behaviors. Animals live for their own pleasure. At the end of the day, there's uh, the pursuit among the animal kingdom them a pleasure without discretion. They'll eat from a trash can. If it seems appealing, they will not have any discretion in their sexual behavior. They'll have no discretion in in their appetites or, or pursuit of pleasure. And when we live like that, when we make happiness and the pursuit of pleasure without any discretion, without any sense of moral boundaries at all, when we make that the centerpiece of our lifestyle, then we too, like Nebuchadnezzar, have exchanged a man's mind for the mind of a beast. And so God warns him, but he doesn't heed it. And he goes on to tell the rest of the story in verse 28. It says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Now I could stop there and preach for about an hour about how Daniel wants us to take prophecy seriously. You see, one of the things that's interesting about this particular chapter is Nebuchadnezzar is writing it in reflection of what happened. We're going to get to the end of the story in a moment that while he's writing this, he's actually on the other side of it. But he is saying, I was warned and God's word actually came to pass. Friends, one of the things that's uh, powerful about the Bible and one of the earmarks that it's a divine book is that over and over again, it predicts. But here's the trustworthy record of scripture is that it not only predicts, but it comes to pass again and again and again. So let's not be dismissive of the prophecies of scripture, but let's embrace the fact that God in his mercy warns us of what's ahead so that we can choose life over death. It all came to pass 
just like the Lord had said it would. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my might, mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? You see what the problem is. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. And every one of us are tempted to do that, to look at our accomplishments, our achievements, degrees, or business success, or titles, or social success, whatever it may be. Be careful when you find yourself at the end of your day saying, look at what I've done. No, that's the opposite of amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. How many know that everything we have in our hands is a gift of God's grace and his grace alone? It was the Apostle Paul who put it this way, I am what I am by the grace of God. May that be our sweet refrain. There's a reason I tell my kids why we bless our food before we eat. Not just to pray, Lord, take the calories out of all of this food we're about to eat. I know some have prayed that prayer. It doesn't work. But we are praying a prayer of thanksgiving, knowing that the food we eat is from his hand. That the ability to work is God giving us strength. That the provision we have, if it were not for the Lord who was on our side, where would we be? Well, Nebuchadnezzar forgot that. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall uh, be driven from among men, and your dwelling which shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Let's stop there for just a moment. That's what God wants to get us to. He wants to get us to a place where we say, you are Lord. And I want you to see something, and this is one of the hardest things for you to see, And only as you mature in Christ will you be able to embrace this. And that is sometimes his judgment is his mercy. Sometimes the greatest thing God does for us is close doors. To not allow the deal to go through. To bring us to a point where maybe we got to file bankruptcy. Or maybe we find ourselves on our back in a hospital. Or maybe in a hotel room or motel room figuring out how did I lose my family and how did I get to this place. Sometimes your lowest point is your best point. Because God is trying to present, prevent rather Nebuchadnezzar from even harsher judgment. He lost his mind but he didn't lose his life. He lost his mind but he didn't lose his soul. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world, but he loses his soul? Maybe today, as you listen to me, you are at the lowest point in your life, and you feel like God has abandoned you. But let me remind you, he has not. He is faithful. When he exposes your sin, he's faithful. When he brings us to a point of public humiliation at times, he is faithful. It is in those moments where God says, I am trying to prevent an even harsher judgment from coming upon you. God could have totally wiped Nebuchadnezzar out, but he doesn't. He gives him yet another opportunity to repent. And he gives that to me and he gives that to you. And I pray that we'll take him up on that offer. 
Well, he restores him. Verse 34 is such a powerful testimony. Verse 34 says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, left my, uh, lifted rather my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can say his hand uh, or say to him, what have you done? In other words, everything he does is righteous. But notice when his mind was restored, when he lifted his eyes to heaven, his reason came back to him. You want your reason to remain? Keep praising God. You want to stay in your right mind? Keep giving him the glory. You want to keep thinking correctly? Keep worshiping him and honoring him and surrendering to his word, his will, and his ways. Not only does he deserve all of it, but how many know that the only pathway to peace is in Jesus? That the only pathway to purpose is found in Jesus? So Nebuchadnezzar finally got restored. When? When he worshiped God, when he repented, when he surrendered his life to him. And when will restoration happen in our lives? It will happen at the same point. When we come to the place of humility. And ultimately, that is where he came. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Can you say a big amen to that? That is a powerful story. All in one chapter. But I want to leave you with hope. I want to leave you with hope that not only can God restore you and me when we're out of our minds, but he can do it for others as well. And maybe there's somebody in your life that you're saying, they're so far gone, they'll never come back. They're so far beyond the pill, they'll never be saved. But how many know Nebuchadnezzar leaves us a letter to declare to us that God is able to save to the utmost? And I want to say this to you, and I think it's true that if God can save you, he can save anybody. How many believe that? Say that with me. Say, if God can save me, he can save anyone. And I believe that that is true. I want to encourage you to stand with me all over this church. We're going to close in prayer. And I appreciate your patience as we work through this text, but I hope you see that these stories are powerful and they're given to us for a reason, not just for us to be able to say, man, that's great ancient literature, but for us to be able to say, Lord, what are you saying to me? Now, one final thing as I pray. Let's not forget that this was a political leader. This was a politician. How many hope and pray in an election year that we would see more politicians coming to where Nebuchadnezzar came saying that Jesus rules, the most high rules, and not just living for themselves? I've asked our pastors across all our campuses that as they pray for salvation and life change and transformation, that they would pray for our political leaders across Woodside campuses. We got uh, mayors and leaders and city council members, and maybe even in this room today, we have political leaders. Understand you've been placed in office, not just for your own will, but to serve others to the glory of God. And I pray that you will heed the wisdom of Nebuchadnezzar as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our lives. 
Thank you that you do grant us mercy, that even your judgment at times is mercy. I pray, Lord, for my brother and sister that's here today that needs to heed this warning, that they would not get this close to mercy and grace and leave. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And so, Lord, for that man, that woman, that boy, that girl that's in here today that needs a touch from the master, may it happen today. Thank you for transforming Nebuchadnezzar and for the testimony that you do it for us as well, again and again and again. And so, Lord, help us to not only receive your salvation, but to declare it until all have heard, until Christ returns. And all God's people with a loud voice said, amen and amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.